This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black on Federal News Network. One-on-one interviews with the people who've left a lasting imprint on the government and the nation. Now your host, Aileen Black. Today, I'm talking with Nick Fine. Nick is currently a partner at venture capital firm Venrock. Nick has deep interests in public policy, and particularly how technology is changing the nature of national security. He serves on the board of directors of the Council on Foreign Relations and recently participated on a task force that published Innovation in National Security, Keeping Our Edge paper, examining how the U.S. can maintain its lead in science and technology, innovation, and national security, and the economic consequences of failing to do so. He served on the Executive Advisory Committee at the Center of Global Energy Policy. Nick specializes in an investment portfolio that he oversees that is heavily weighted in investments that focus on defense and national security. So first off, Nick, it's a pleasure having you on the show today. Important things we have to talk about, but we're also practicing social distance. Uh, We're both at our remote locations in our individual offices. Thanks very much for having me on the show, Eileen. It's great to join you. So Nick, as I mentioned, you have been a leader in sounding the alarm that the U.S. is losing the race on key technologies with China. Matter of fact, you wrote, I think, an opinion piece in Business Insider with a a U.S. congressman, and in it, you make this point, I'm going to paraphrase it, the U.S. could wake up to discover that all encryption has been rendered useless by a Chinese quantum computing breakthrough. Your bank statements, your texts, and the government's secrets are now in full public view. Once the stuff of science fiction but is no longer. So tell us about that concern and tell us what that means to the U.S. citizens across America. Sure, I think for the first time uh, in 70 years, we face a real challenge to our leadership in science and technology, which we've enjoyed and has been really the foundation of uh, our economic strength and our military advantage, uh, and really critical to how we see ourselves as American. I wouldn't say we're losing the race, but I'd say the challenge is greater than it's ever been. We've had our uh, science and technology leadership challenged in the past, in the military sphere by Germany in World War II and by the Soviet Union in the Cold War, economically in certain industries by Japan in the 1970s, 1980s. Uh, I think every time we've been challenged, we've come together as a country and overcome those challenges. And I think the challenge we face from China is different, uh, more significant, and longer term than the challenges we faced from any of those three other countries. And I think we are eminently capable of stepping up to the challenge, but to do so, we need to come together as a country and focus on committing to an effective response. And there are a lot of different elements of that response, but the reason there's a challenge is that I think China has very thoughtfully observed what made us into the economic and military superpower that that we became, a core part of which was that we led the world in science and technology. And they not only are seeking to do the same in, in many respects, not in all respects, they're seeking to do it in the same way. So they're investing very heavily in basic research, which we began doing after World War II uh, and led to organizations like the National Science Foundation and DARPA. Um, They are 
uh, making sure that their private sector works very closely with the military, which we used to be better at, and of course China does in a more authoritarian way. And um, they're using their scale advantages uh, when it comes to having lots more engineers uh, than we do and having a lot of data that they have no compunction about taking from the private sector and, and combining for government uh, usage and, and really to ensure government power. So that's the challenge. And um, we have a different kind of system. And I think the way we best respond to that challenge is not by emulating it by any means. Uh, we have extraordinarily deep resources of, of innovation and uh, scientific capabilities in this country. And it's not by playing defense. I think there's some defensive tactics we've pursued in uh, export restrictions, in trade generally. But I think the primary way that we compete, as we did with the Soviet Union, as we did with Germany, is by investing in our strengths and investing more resources in basic research, in education, in ways for government to work with the private sector. And as I said, we've done it before, and I, I think we can do it again. So let's take a step back there. You're talking about the difference between a communist regime that can focus all the resources directed by one particular goal, right? Uh, versus open free market, right? And open free market has really worked for the US for hundreds of years, right? I mean, that's what has given us our leadership. So how would you define, what do you mean by leadership for America? to be able to maintain their leadership in the areas of science and technology? I think our free market system is one of the great foundations of our strength. I think there are others as well. Our educational system, particularly at the university level, is uh, second to none. It's really extraordinary. And I think we continue, despite some recent challenges, to attract the best and brightest from around the world. I think those are all extraordinary strengths. By leadership, what I mean is that I think we have lost sight of what enabled us to become a science and technology superpower. Uh, those things were not the natural results of our economic strength. They are not the natural results of our economic system. They are not the natural results of our economic position of advantage after World War II. They were the result of a very conscious effort to proactively invest in uh, basic research uh, through organizations like the National Science Foundation and DARPA, certainly in the healthcare fields outside of national security, although now partly inside of national security as well, the NIH, and making sure that government and industry and the academic sectors work closely together, which was sort of the, the core triumvirate that underpinned how we came up with a lot of our core defense innovations after World War II. One example of how we have lost sight of this is if you look at investment in basic research as a percent of GDP, it's fallen from a peak of 2.5% in uh, the late 50s, early 60s to 0.7% today, despite the, the massive results that it's generated. And even in my own world of venture capital, if you were to ask most entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley uh, why we're so in innovative, they probably don't, would not have a full understanding that a lot of the core innovations that made Silicon Valley possible, including the microprocessor, the computer, the internet, GPS, came from defense spending, government spending on innovation and research. 
So I think we need to rediscover our roots. I think also our education system uh, is another area where uh, at the onset of the Cold War, we invested heavily in STEM education and it worked. And I think we need to do that again. I think our primary and secondary education system needs a lot of help. It's of course a politically uh, contested area, but whatever one's political viewpoint, I think we shouldn't be satisfied with the results of our primary and secondary education. So. I think we need to look at this challenge holistically, really civilization-wide, and think about how we best reinvest in the core resources of our uh, science and technological strength. Now, I, I started in the tech sector here in the DC area in the mid 80s. And that was a time when US government really almost controlled the clock speed of technology, the huge investments, big companies like Oracle, Sun, uh, VMware got their start really with money from DARPA or the CIA and helping fund the research that actually produced that technology and those companies that are iconic tech companies today. But the clock speed and the control of that technology has somewhat changed because the bigger share in the investment money is not coming from the government today. It is coming from private sector, either from corporations like uh, the big fang companies or, or in VCs versus really being coming from the government itself. Tell us about that and what are the implications of the transition of the funding and the influence? Sure. The government played a central role in the development of our information technology industry. And they, as you said, they've uh, helped some of the most significant uh, tech companies get their start, both through uh, basic research investments and as serving as an early customer uh, in breakthrough technology areas. Uh, and they continue to do so. They continue to help companies in particularly relevant cutting edge areas like data analytics, cybersecurity, and that's a, a big help to the tech sector. I think what's changed, the, the biggest change, that the tech and venture capital industries have grown immensely since the end of World War II. The, the venture capital industry that focused on technology uh, was tiny, even in the late 70s, 1980, was you know less than $100 million dollars. Today, it's, it's over $100 billion, and uh, certainly we've seen the growth of technology giants from Oracle and Sun to uh, Microsoft and Intel to Google and Amazon and, and Apple. And because the tech sector and venture capital sectors are so much bigger today, they can provide more investment and generate more revenue than the government can, which... Uh, is a great thing for the government. And the government is actually emphasizing this in a lot of their new acquisition policies because it means that the government, while it can continue to work on cool technology areas with promising startups, doesn't have to carry the burden of the industry on its own. And technology develops much more rapidly across a much larger user base. I'm speaking with Nick Vine, partner at venture capital firm Venrock. After a break, we'll discuss how if the U.S. loses its leadership in technology, how it could create an economic crisis. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Nick Vine, partner from venture capital firm Venrock. So, Nick, I, I need to continue our, our conversation a little bit earlier about the leadership of the U.S., but what is China doing to take the leadership position as a technology leader? And what specifically are they doing that's really making a difference uh, and they're gaining momentum over this lead? China is 
seeking to dominate the strategic technology fields of tomorrow that will enable them to have the leading economy and the leading military. Areas like AI, quantum information systems, biotechnology, energy and battery technology. China's been very explicit about this in their China 2025 plan, and it's part of a maturation of uh, an economy that has been primarily focused on uh, manufacturing. So there are certainly a lot of domestic benefits for this, but it's been unusually aggressive in trying to uh, invest to dominate these different fields. And specifically what it's doing is it's investing heavily in R&D. Again, I think it's learned its lessons uh, very much by observing the success of the U.S. and our significant investments in R&D. Uh, after World War II in organizations like the NSF and DARPA. It's expected to invest over $200 billion over the upcoming decade in R&D and industrial policies to dominate certain industries. So we've seen Huawei as an interesting example of this. The Wall Street Journal estimates that Huawei has received government subsidies of about $75 billion both Huawei and the Chinese government deny that, but it's, um, it's otherwise it's difficult to understand how they can price so low. That's obviously is strategically important for them economically and from a national security perspective to own a lot of global 5G infrastructure. Uh, another uh, industry they are very eager to avoid foreign dependence on and to dominate and, and reap benefits both economically and, and from a national security perspective from is semiconductors. I think as many listeners know, they are heavily dependent on U.S. semiconductors today, and they would um, like to shake that dependence. Um, so they're investing very heavily to dominate industries like that. They're also investing very heavily in STEM education, very much like we did after World War II. And just for a sense of scale, China graduates three times as many STEM undergraduates as the U.S. does, and that gap is growing rapidly. I think the last thing I'd say is, due to their authoritarian form of government, um, they have created business government relations that gives the Chinese Communist Party immense influence over the private sector to take and make use of their data, to replace executives, uh, and so on. So those are some of the different things that China's doing. So let's take just one of those examples, such as batteries. They're really investing in that area, even down to the precious uh, minerals and, and metals that go into making batteries where uh, I read somewhere where we're all moving to uh, different types of cars, more electric cars such as Tesla, and that a lot of the mines are now owned by the Chinese government. So where are we going to get these batteries from? We're going to be dependent on China for these batteries. Is, is that a good example of why we should all be concerned? Yeah, that is definitely a good example. We need to do a lot of things differently, and we need to think both offensively and defensively. I think rare earth metals is a great example where China, due to the fortune of you know what's underground, has an unusual dominance, and those are very significant inputs in the high-tech industry. We do have some rare earth metals that we could mine more in the U.S. I think we'd have to figure out how to do it in a way that's politically palatable and cost effective. We certainly can do that. And we're certainly working with other countries to try to limit our dependence on China. But right now, in the same way that they're very dependent on us for a lot of technology components uh, and other materials, we're very dependent on them for rare earth metals. 
you've been put on part of a task force to look at these very issues. Tell us about the task force, who's on it, and why it was formed. So this is a task force put together by the Council on Foreign Relations, a think tank. It was put together for the purpose of highlighting the significance of innovation to national security. And it's, it's uh, significant in a variety of ways that, that I'll, I'll mention briefly. The task force was led by Admiral William McRaven and James Benyika, who runs the McKinsey Global Institute. Other participants on the task force included Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google, uh, Reid Hoffman, the founder uh, and former CEO of LinkedIn, uh, Regina Dugan, the former head of DARPA, and DJ Patil, uh, who was the first chief data scientist of the US. The focus of the uh, task force was how do we respond to this challenge from China? And the high level uh, answer that we gave is we need to do four things differently. The first is we need to invest more in basic research. As I mentioned earlier, as a percent of GDP, we invest far less in basic research today than we did at the time where it made the biggest difference in the late 50s, early 60s. And so we recommended that we increase federal funding of basic research from 0.7% of GDP to 1.1%. This, uh, in my mind, is not a partisan issue. Uh, this isn't a government program in the way that a lot of other government programs become partisan. Uh, it's an investment in basic research at a scale that only the government can do, and private sector just does not have the incentives to do. The second thing uh, we focused on uh, was greatly increasing the amount of STEM talent in the U.S., both by improving our education system and really developing something analogous to a 21st century National Defense Education Act, again, similar to what we did after World War II. And the second is continuing to uh, attract and retain the best STEM talent from around the world, which we could do so much better than we do. Uh, for people who come to the U.S. to get a degree, we should staple a visa on their diplomas. It's a shame that we let these people go, uh, so many of them go. It's one of our great comparative advantages as a country that we're such a source of attraction for, for great talent. The third thing uh, that we focused on is accelerating the adoption of, of advanced technology in the DOD and the IC. Uh, this is an area you know, Eileen, extremely well, and there are many things that we can do differently. A very quick uh, summary would uh, include acquisition reform, particularly in software, and through uh, working with more startups, uh, hiring and promoting more tech talent in government, expanding programs like uh, DDS and, and the broader USDS that it's a part of that, that bring great technology talents to government, uh, expanding DIU and InQtel. And uh, one final idea that we had is creating a U.S. Digital Service Academy as part of the military to bolster the ranks of tech leaders uh, in government. The, the last thing that we suggested was broadening technology alliances with our classic allies related to the development and adoption of advanced technologies. And so one example of this would be in the 5G area where uh, Huawei has such a significant uh, lead and price advantage. If we could band together in sort of much more group-oriented purchasing, and focus our investment in uh, basic research and coordinate that investment in future technologies that will put us ahead for 6G and other elements that are as yet undefined in 5G, that would be very helpful.
that sounds like an incredible um, report. How can somebody, a listener out there that would like to read it, how could they get a hold of that report? Uh, if they go to CFR.org and search for Keeping Our Edge, which was the name of the report, uh, they can find it. So let's talk about the economic outcomes to the U.S. of not taking this serious. What would happen to the U.S. economy as we lose this leadership position if we don't do as we have done in the past and, and really address this very strict and very strong uh, reaction? It's a great question, and it's a question I wish we talked more about in public discourse, and I wish uh, politicians would focus more on. Often, technology is new technologies are reported on uh, under the subject of potential job loss or other problems they could create. But I think less talked about and extremely significant is, is uh, the economic consequences of falling behind a country like China in, in some or most technology areas. I think the, the specific economic impact would be job creation would slow significantly, GDP growth would slow, and unemployment would likely rise. Um, I think our standard of living would fall, and we'd lose an important element of control uh, over our economic destiny uh, to other countries, and particularly to China, which is a feeling that we're not accustomed to. And in particular, we would run the risk of not uh, starting and, and really controlling the great industries of tomorrow. Today, we're in a great position in information technology, in biotechnology, of really being having created the major companies in these industries, creating a ton of high-wage jobs in these industries, and benefiting from the national security um, benefits of being the leaders in these industries. And I think we would start to lose those things. And once we were in that state, I think it would be extremely painful. And, and it's something we should focus on today. I'm speaking with Nick Bine, partner from venture capital firm Venrock. Coming up next, we'll continue to talk about the outcomes of losing our technology lead with China. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today we're talking with Nick Bine, partner from venture capital firm Venrock. Nick, you've worked and been making investments in innovative startups that can disrupt the use of technology in really very productive ways. These companies must get government slash companies to adopt new ideas, getting organizations to change what they do to every day and adopt um, new technology. Change is hard under any circumstances, and with the current lack of cooperation in political circles today, this is extremely difficult. Any suggestions or where the U.S. could start to really change the way they approach technology? I mean, the report kind of talks about that with acquisition change, but it goes beyond acquisition change to really get the U.S. federal government to integrate net new technology into their daily mission activities. I think cultural change when it comes to adopting technology effectively is extraordinarily hard. And for that reason, we've seen massive turnover in the S&P 500 and will continue to do so. So this is something the private sector struggles with. It's something the government struggles with. I think the most important things are great leadership and incentives uh, for innovation. So in promotions, career pathing, uh, recognition of achievements, and leadership that really understands that in order to innovate, one has to organize differently, 
One has to hire differently. One has to hire people that are willing to take risks. One has to be willing to take more risks and understand that failure is not only a part of that process, but uh, one of the most important elements to learning what can work is by seeing what doesn't work. I think Congress can struggle with that sometimes. And they, if they see failure, you know, people worry about funding for future programs. But if you look at any great technology organizations, they have lots of failure and they learn from it. Uh, and I think that's, that's critical uh, for achieving change. One last comment is that I think the best innovators in large organizations from historically Lockheed to Google uh, to, to the DOD come from skunk works that has some degree of autonomy in developing new and different approaches. And I think being able to nurture those types of skunk works along with broader institutionalized innovation initiatives uh, is very helpful. Google itself famously does this uh, uh, pretty extensively. So do you have any stories that you could tell or any experiences you've had with some of your smaller innovative companies where they've been able to break through that with that with the federal government? Sure. I think uh, for small innovative companies, um, the key for them in working with government is finding people who understand what they're capable of and who are willing to work with them uh, and provide them the feedback and product development they need to get there. So one of the biggest challenges for startups, which, as you know, don't have finished products, but have immense potential and immense talent and immense focus, is to find the kind of people that are willing to nurture them. Um, and so I think if the government is able to field more people like that, that are able to work with the most promising startups, they will get um, much better results than they're getting today. So speaking of nurturing and helping inspire people, you're clearly an amazing leader that has a, had a lasting impact on the technology for this nation. But was there somebody who helped you with this? Nick, was there an event or person that inspired you or had a tremendous impact on you as a leader um, and gave you fuel this passion that you have for technology for good? Yeah, it's interesting. I'll, I'll mention two. Uh, I think the, the person who had the greatest impact on me was my dad, uh, who led an extraordinary career in, in the private sector and then in the public sector and then as an academic. He's someone who really led through ideas and empathy and empowering others. Uh, he was extremely thoughtful and he'd think very deeply about a problem from every angle, patiently put you know, hundreds of hours into it and ultimately suggest ideas that were so attractive that they would develop big followings and, and end up transforming organizations. And he helped uh, build an investment bank with this type of approach. He helped save and transform some nonprofits and, and change uh, the work of the Exim Bank where he served in government. The other person I'd highlight who I think is an extraordinary and underappreciated figure, and actually in the national security area specifically, is uh, Vannevar Bush, who was really the father of the U.S. research state. Uh, and I think, uh, as you know, he was really the first presidential scientific advisor and saw the impact that science could have on national security. And in World War II, um, helped integrate, find and integrate the kinds of innovations that would um, have the biggest impact on the war, uh, in, in particular microwave radar uh, as used from planes, 
and really helped change the, the outcome of the war. He ultimately was the person who suggested and helped kick off the Manhattan Project. Um, and then after the war, he convinced Roosevelt and Truman to uh, invest heavily in basic research. And that was really the only way we could become a science and tech superpower. And he was right. And what I really admired about him as a leader is he brought transformative ideas from one field into another and was able to speak the language of both. And he sort of uniquely straddled these two worlds of science and national security and was able to bring such powerful ideas as a result of that. I've been very impressed by the impact he's had and I, I think he's an underappreciated historical figure. Over the last decade, technology landscape has drastically changed with the evolution of cloud computing, AI, quantum, and 5G. How do you believe these technology advances will change our lives? And what do you believe is the biggest disruptor or accelerator for to technology going into the next decade? I think the most discernible change uh, for most people of those innovations is that software will become embedded in everything, physical objects, human processes of all kinds, and will become immensely more intelligent. Um, and the things we spend thousands of hours on today will be possible with the push of a button because the software will have learned from our past behavior. With regards to what will be the most transformative technology, my view is that AI uh, for decades to come will likely be the most transformative technology because it keeps getting better. The core inputs that drive it uh, processing power, data, and better algorithms all keep getting better. And it is slowly moving up the cognitive stack of things that it's able to do. I have a somewhat contrarian view of its impact on jobs. I think AI will certainly be able to automate a lot of jobs today that are done manually. And there will be uh, a loss of jobs in certain sectors without question. However, overall, as with the advent of computers, I think the best way to think about the impact of AI is not what it replaces, which was certainly the exact fear that people had when computers came along. Lots of people in industries that involves a lot of math and calculation, like accountants, were scared to death that they were gonna be out of jobs. What happened was the opposite. Computers enabled them to automate the easy stuff so that they could focus on harder stuff and offer a lot more premium services in the accounting industry grew massively as a result of the advent of computers. And I think it'll be similar with AI. People will work with AI in the same way we work with computers. And as in chess competitions today, the most powerful players are not individual humans or individual uh, computers with AI, but the combination of humans and AI. So, and, and I think the biggest players in our technology future, um, as has been the case for the last several decades, will be existing platform companies, big software, big internet platform companies, because they have so many resources and particularly are so advanced in AI, but startups as well. And a lot that we, we don't know the names of yet um, because new technology shifts will turn startups into the, the platform companies of tomorrow. And there will be many technology shifts coming. So the presence management agenda cites data as a strategic asset and all of the technologies you were just talking about will only produce valuable outcomes if the foundation of data that feeds them is good or simply um, if you put garbage in, garbage out. An important step is actually managing and having governance over that data. What are your thoughts? And is it 
important that data plays on our nation's most strategic asset? Is it data? Data is a critically important asset, and we need to think about it differently. Uh, we need to change organizational cultures when it comes to data, and I think particularly in government, where the natural incentive may be to control or hoard data to increase one's relative power. Uh, I think that the DOD, the IC, will be much more powerful if they share data and aggregate data and are able to extract more intelligence as a result. I think in the AI world, data is like sunlight. The, the more of it and the better of it that you have, the more you can see. I think we as a country must approach data and will approach data very differently than an authoritarian regime like China would, uh, given our values. We, we put high value on civil rights and civil liberties, and, and rightly so. And, we, we can use technology to protect those rights and liberties. It is by no means inevitable that they will be sacrificed by more aggressive aggregation of data and use of AI. We just have to figure out the right management regimes to protect them. You're listening to Leaders in Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Nick Bime, partner from venture capital firm Venrock. Next, we'll find out uh, Nick's uh, advice to the next generation of leaders. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Eileen Black, and today I'm talking with Nick Bime, partner from venture capital firm Benrock. Nick, I'd like to talk a little bit about. I'd like to take a step back. We've been talking about technology and the leadership, but I want to talk about your background. Where did you grow up? What was your first job? How'd you get into technology? Sure. I, I was born in London to American parents, um, grew up mostly in New York and went to school all over the place. Uh, went to high school in New England. I went to college uh, in California and, and, and grad school uh, in England. What drew me to technology really was going to Stanford where I went to college. Um, it was integrated in everything. It was in the air. Startups were woven into the fabric of the school. Uh, I remember taking philosophy courses where you could study logic on your own with computers and uh, progress very rapidly. And uh, it provided a different perspective and a love for technology and really an appreciation for the revolution that was to come that, that affected me greatly. My first real job was working first for 60 minutes as a production assistant on a number of documentaries they made uh, relating to the Soviet Union, and then working with the producer of those documentaries to uh, help him write his book, Charlie Wilson's War, which I'm sure you've read, and uh, I'm totally biased, but I thought was a terrific book, and of course now uh, is a movie as well. Um, so that's a quick summary uh, of, of, uh, of my life. I think the, the involvement in researching Charlie Wilson's war um, gave me a real affinity for the national security world. And it was at a time when the Soviet Union was falling, the world was pivoting around the new US-Soviet, US-Russian relationship. And I just had a fascination with how the world could be different. From my observation, you can just feel it. You, you seem to really have married your passion with your capabilities. Do you think that has contributed or fueled your success? Definitely. I am passionate about both technology innovation uh, and about national security. And bringing them together 
uh, in a way that can make the country and, and the world a better place has immense attraction for me. It, it really isn't work, it's, it's meaning and fulfillment, um, and it's really become who I am. I had to ask you, if I went back to Nick at Stanford at 22 and I asked him uh, what he thought he'd be doing in, in 20 plus years, um, do you what do you think he would say? Do you think he would be an investment uh, partner at Venrock? <laughs> Certainly not. I, I think I would have given you a vague answer about uh, doing something fun that would make the world a better place. And, and I probably would have involved international relations or national security to an extent. But I had no idea how that would play out. And the ultimate way it played out was very serendipitous. I, I, uh, my career was a result of the following things I found very interesting uh, and combining my work and insights from a number of different fields uh, in a way that ended up being, being very helpful. Uh, so I've learned a lot along the way and I wouldn't have been able to tell you where I was going 25 years ago. <laughs> so I got I to gotta stop and ask you then, you know, your career and success has truly been inspirational. So, you know, what kinds of pearls of wisdoms would you have for that, you know, 22 year old Nick out there that would like to be you in 20 plus years? What, what would you say to that next generation of Nick's? I would certainly tell them to follow their passion, follow, follow what drives them the most. And in seeking to make a difference, I would, tell them to try to be both a specialist and a generalist in a way that would enable them to bring together insights from different fields. I, I think in a hyper-specialized world, that is a superpower. And that type of insight is needed most to be able to help people from different fields speak together, understand a common language and benefit from each other's insights. That's made a big difference in, in my life. And I think the world is becoming ever more specialized and being able to be both a specialist and a generalist is becoming ever more important. You would say that, uh, you know, communications and their skill to be able to talk is an extremely, just a fundamental skill everybody needs to work on. Communications is central and really understanding what drives different fields and being able to understand how insights from one field could be applicable in another is, is critical. And uh, that's where I, th if you look in science, if you look in tech, uh, even in the policy world, sometimes the biggest ideas and innovations come from that sort of cross-fertilization. And again, in a hyper-specialized world, I, I think we need more and more of it. You've been listening to Leaders and Legend in Government. My guest today has been Nick Fine, partner from venture capital firm Benrock. First, Nick, I want to thank you for joining us today and sharing your personal journey and some extremely valuable advice and, uh, and a little bit of alarm that I think we should all listen to. Uh, thank you for joining us and thank you for listening. You've been listening to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black. Subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One.